Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be looking at innovation and the future of mobile, what the post-mobile world will look like, how Apple, Google, and others are shaping the mobile experience of the future, and the next frontiers of mobile after health and fitness. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Horace Dediu, noted Apple analyst, prolific writer, and since 2010, the driving force behind ASIMCO, an innovative independent consultancy that stands the traditional consulting model on its head. Horace's main outlet online is asimco.com, where he has written more than 1,600 posts on a wide range of topics. Along with Moises Chuyan, Horace hosts The Critical Path, a talk show contemplating the causality of success and failure in the evolving story of mobile computing and related industries. Before striking out on his own at ASIMCO, Horace spent eight years at Nokia as an industry analyst and business development manager. He was also a student of innovation guru Clay Christensen at the Harvard Business School. Welcome to the podcast, Horace. Hey, my pleasure. So let's start off today, Horace, talking about a pretty broad topic, where mobile is going. Uh, It's been in the news a lot lately with Apple's WWDC and Google's I.O. conference, the unveiling of Amazon's new phone. For all the talk about mobile, though, you said in a recent interview with Forbes that you think the post-mobile world is only five or ten years away. So for listeners out there that might have a hard time envisioning that, what does the post-mobile world look like? Well, the, firstly, let me just address the timing because I think what we're where we're at with with uh, with any technology is that usually diffuses into the economy or diffuses into the uh, the the available user uh, base uh, at a certain rate, and and we we can measure that. And the the rate of adoption of what we call mobile today, I think, mostly smartphones. Um, as a proxy for that. Mm-hmm. It includes services, it includes all kinds of things, but the number of smartphones and percentage of population that's using them is going on this predictable path that will reach saturation in about five years. I'd say depends on your definition of saturation. It could be 80%, it could be 90%, it could even be 100%. But we've seen that before. We've seen that with with just plain mobile phones before they were smartphones, and we've seen that with uh, all kinds of consumer technologies where they've gone up a ramp and then saturated. So what I'm referring to is sort of a post-mobile world. It would be what happens after saturation, because you say once you get to 100%, you have to deal with commoditization, that the the, the products become uh, ubiquitous and the competition uh, you know, generally uh, revolves around pricing uh, rather than improvement of the product. And and uh, the population has absorbed as much of the product as possible, and it, it, just, it just stagnates as a business. We see that also with automobiles today. We see that with consumer electronics a lot. We see that with the PC. These have gone to that point earlier. Bear in mind, that doesn't mean the industry evaporates rather that the growth tends to evaporate, the the excess profitability, the excess margins. And that's a bad thing because those tend to feed the engine of of improvements and 
it tracks the talent and attracts the development that's necessary to really move forward. So I pay attention to the saturation point only because I think that's an early indicator of a shift that's going to have to happen. People don't stop innovating. They just turn their attention somewhere else. All the talent, all the capital tends to get reallocated. And so that's what that's what I'm 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 thinking about. And so the the question then would what would come after? Well, we, we're seeing a lot of early indicators. Computers are becoming smaller all the time, and they, you know, mobile is nothing more than probably the fifth evolution of computing, uh, where we've gone from, you know, massive giant computers all the way to something in our pockets, and probably we're going to get to the point where we actually wear these things. It's the natural evolution to making things more small, uh, and I call them, you know, intimate computing. So I see that as kind of the next wave beyond pocketable computing into the sort of wearable and something that we think of as more than something we wear. Sure. So let, let me ask some Apple-related questions because one of your claims to fame is that you're one of the most well-known Apple analysts in the world. Uh, you said earlier this year that you thought uh, Leander Connie's book on Apple design guru Johnny Ive is the best book on Apple that has been written thus far. And one of the things that the book sheds light on is the Apple New Product Process, or ANPP, as it's abbreviated to. Can you describe some of the components of ANPP and how Apple uses it to build new products? Well, firstly, I think the ANPP hints that we got, I mean, we don't have a, uh, a great description of it. Uh, I think that Leander did a good job in sort of collecting all the public info on it, and and there was, there have been small leaks here and there, but the main the main takeaway about it is that there is a process. I think the important thing to understand about Apple is that it isn't uh, as many people would would I think the, the, they become uh, accustomed to the notion that that uh, Steve Jobs worked as a capricious uh, genius, which led the company in heroic efforts. To, to solve unsolvable problems and, and do so through, through the magic of um, uh, a serendipity and, and effort and talent and, and everything else. That is a romantic notion of, of product development. I think in reality, what Apple does is uh, very much process-oriented. And the, the thing that excited me about the book was that there are these hints in there that there is a process. And I perhaps even Apple doesn't want anybody to know this. They would like to propagate the notion that it's a heroic effort because the products reveal themselves to be heroic products, that they have this sort of um, exceptional quality to them, that there's almost magical quality to them. But also we know from, from Steve Jobs uh, that he, he was a he was very keen of the of the of the idea of things getting constantly refined there's the the anecdote of him being enlightened by the way rocks become beautiful polished objects and there's there's a machine simply that runs for a long time tumbling rocks that gets them into a state of high polish um and so they become jewel like but it's only through a, a very con long continuous process of refinement so he that, that aspect of it is really, I think, what's happening is that a lot of the great products incubate for a long time, iterate for a long time, until finally they come out 
to to the point where they're jewel enough, jewel like enough, and that's when the put button is pushed to release it. So there's this there's this notion that that Apple kind of has this intuition or or spark of genius, and that Steve Jobs was the was the source of it. But in fact, I think there's 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 the, you you hear about the fact that things got started ten years earlier than when they actually launched, and that they were iterating for a long time with many many things. The other, the other, uh, the other, not anecdote, but I guess this is actually in the book about um, Johnny Ive is that he too, in his history, generated thousands of prototypes of everything he's ever built. So he's always been in that process of refinement. And it's very hard for the layperson to appreciate the effort needed to launch some product. People think that you just decide one day, you wake up and you say, ah, I'm going to have a touch screen and nobody else thought of it. Well, actually, everybody thought of it, but nobody executed it right until it was done by Apple in a certain way. So that's the process at work rather than sort of just being uh, a pure intuition. So sticking with Apple, but broadening the scope a little bit to include Google and others, one of the uh, one of the features of iOS 8, which was recently announced at WWDC, is HealthKit. It's a new developer API that gathers users' health information from multiple sources and apps. Uh, Google just announced Google Fit, which is essentially their, you know, their their counterpart to that. So health and fitness is one area where it feels like there's a huge land grab going on right now in mm -hmm. the mobile space, along with wearables, I suppose, in conjunction. What do you think might be the next frontier in mobile after health and fitness? Uh, after after fitness, I think. Well, that's a, um, see. There's one more player out there that doesn't get a lot of credit, but I think actually is interesting as as just one more one more data point about this land grab, and that's mm -hmm. that Samsung themselves have, have have promoted their own alternative platform for for fitness. Mm -hmm. So it's not just uh, it's not just Google and Apple. Uh, we might even hear something from Microsoft. But the 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 idea is that you're right. This is this is a wide open. Uh, a field now because there's so much activity uh, going on by the technology companies to try to get in on it. But let's step back a, a minute to understand why this is potentially exciting. It's firstly because healthcare is a largely, uh, I would say, it's a, it's a sector that has not been touched by consumer technology. It's been touched by a lot of technology, but all of that has been institutional purchase technology. So it's stuff that has to be regulated. It's stuff that has to be approved by the FDA or any other um, drug administration for every country in the world, which makes it very difficult to get stuff approved. Mm -hmm. And and so it tends to lag the adoption of, of what consumers... And historically, it was big companies that bought technologies and consumers didn't buy any technology. And that was computers and mainframes and things like that. And over time, we've gotten to the point where consumers are actually faster at adopting technologies than institutions and businesses. And that probably that actually started happening in the early 2000s when consumer technology uh, with PCs was actually getting ahead of what companies were willing to purchase. Um, so that just accelerated and, and, and went into services and went into uh, mobile and all these other dimensions. And uh, now we're seeing where, you know, kids are adopting messaging technology so rapidly that, you know, half a billion people can get online with a new service within a matter of months. So that's the rate of change in, in, in consumer tech. And, and, and the problem with, with particularly with health technology is that it's been stuck in another decade. And that's why 
it's exciting to see sensor-based stuff coming out and allowing uh, consumers to generate data about their own health. Um, there's another point to be made in that the data that, that institutions generate about your health is controlled also under the same umbrella of regulation. So there's all kinds of compliance issues with respect to the data itself. So that means that data is essentially locked up, cannot be accessed, cannot be improved, cannot be, uh, there can be very little innovation on it, there can be no crowdsourcing, there can be no sharing, even you cannot access your own health file. So there's this, this whole question of how tightly can it be locked down. Whereas in the consumer space, you have essentially you know, end user generated content like you do today with, with messaging and people are sharing so much about themselves on social media uh, that these devices will allow them to actually share a lot of their health information. Um, and it may sound a bit scary, but it sounded scary to all of us you know, of a certain age to see social media, to see Facebook take off, to see Twitter take off when so many people sharing so much information that could potentially be held against them. But it didn't, it didn't matter. People love to do it. So there's this question about user-generated data that devices can generate about your, your, your sort of vital statistics that could be now assembled and, and, and managed with outside of the umbrella of regulation, and that could lead to huge opportunities. Don't forget that the healthcare sector is bigger than the telecom sector. So when technology ran headlong, consumer technology and microprocessors and software technology ran headlong into the, the telecom world, we got the smartphone revolution, right? Before then, that was a regulated world that uh, was a club of mobile operator and a select few handset makers that had their own little uh, rules to, 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 to follow. And when the PC guys or the computer guys or the software guys came in, they completely disrupted that model. And now we have essentially uh, really pocket computers. Now what, what might happen with, with healthcare is the same thing, is this, this disruptive effect of uh, microprocessor-based technologies coming in and um, with communications attached, completely changing the way health is, is uh, maintained. And that could lead to huge opportunity, uh, bigger even potentially than, than uh, the telecom sector, which is a $1.3 trillion industry. That's not to say that doctors are going to go away, but a lot of this excess baggage of healthcare about really think about diagnostics, which are probably 80% of the workload in healthcare. A lot of that stuff can be now offloaded to the consumer themselves doing their own their own me measurements and diagnostics and then having the decision-making be done by a physician. But that in itself would be disruptive because you would take out, you would essentially collapse the entire revenue structure, the entire cost structure of the industry, and, and it, would, it would not be the same thing we see today. So it's phenomenally interesting to just think about the implications of health uh, if, we, if we focus from treatment to maintenance. Uh, and, and maintenance uh, enabled by consumer devices that actually allow you to monitor your health. This is why I'm extremely bullish about wearables. It's not that, that I think that they're toys that, that are kind of cute gadgets. I see this as a disruptive vector into an industry that's far bigger than telecommunications or computing as we know it today. So that, that's going to be huge. So I, I, I'm, I, I would say that's going to take a 20-year uh, time frame to go, to go propagate through. Uh, but it, when it does, it's it's gonna it's gonna change the world really literally. Uh, the other thing, if you want to kind of aim at the big white spaces, the unconquered lands that computers have not gone into, 
big one that's un uh, unaddressed is education. We 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 don't see solutions, right? You know, truly technological solutions to education. The only hints we have are things like um, massively. Uh, uh, you know, uh, massively, um, I forget the oh, word. Right. Like, MOOCs, massively open online courses. Open online, yeah, MOOCs, exactly. We have that phenomenon. We have Khan Academy. We have Wikipedia itself, which is just a wonderful resource for, for, for reference. And you have, you have these things which didn't set out to disrupt. They just are really nice ways for people to, to uh, learn and to teach. And when, when that can be addressed with with technology then we're going to finally reverse what's essentially been a century old process of 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 education and by the way there are there are books on this um i'm 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 inspired by clay christensen's work on on particularly on healthcare and and uh, and, uh, and the disruptive effects of um, devices on that plus the the education sector and he addressed these years ago before we, we even had the uh, wearables notions or the, some of the mobile stuff that's come since but essentially this these are the disruptive forces and I think I think it's just a matter of when not if when do these things happen and la last one I would say well there's a couple more but, but la another big one is um, transportation uh, the the uh, we're gonna we're facing all kinds of crises with respect to uh, the environment, and part of the blame is transportation costs in terms of carbon. But a lot of that can be solved with information technology. So rather than making more efficient cars or even driverless cars, how about not not driving at all? How about getting rid of the need to travel? How about getting rid of of the need to commute? Uh, there's a lot of odd odd behaviors that we're going to look back. 20, 30, 50 years from now and say, why did we ever do that? Um, so that's that's going to change. And I think some of the elements of the energy sector as well are going to get deeply affected by, by, by new technologies. Okay, great. All, uh, all great verticals to look at. I think the wearable space is really, and the healthcare space kind of combined that you mentioned is, is really interesting. You know, today, if I want to get my VO2 max, I can go to the bike and jump on and pedal for five minutes at a certain heart rate and it'll spit out my VO2 max. But I think probably five or 10 years from now, there's a point in time where we'll get not only VO2 max, but a number of other biometric data points that will get fed back to us that show the effect of, you know, how well you slept last night or how much you slept last night or whether or not yep. you decided to eat that Twinkie. Uh, so, you know, I, I think just vast, absolutely, vast you know, we're we're throwing out a or throwing off a huge amount of information that can be picked up with sensors that are going to become really cheap to make and really comfortable to wear. And so the question will only be in sort of a, whether you want to bother or not, or whether you want to uh, be nagged or not. Uh, surely some people will object, and that's fine. But uh, but then they're going to see their their friends who who adopt this technology looking better and, and feeling healthier and solving some of the problems. You know, if you think about some of these industries, the feel good and feel good about yourself industries, whether they are fitness, dieting, uh, the the cosmetics and all of these things, these are hundreds, billions of dollars, right? These are not what we think of as healthcare today, but they are a, they're ancillary to the whole health question or job to be done that that exists for for uh, the preservation of our of our lifestyles, and so this is this is where where technology ha can play a huge role. Diet itself is probably one of the toughest ones 
because you you know it's very hard right now to sense what's going into what you're ingesting but i think that that's a, once that nut is cracked uh we can see huge progress on on uh, on dieting and all the diet uh, t- all the diet um um industry will will be disrupted by by technology so you won't think wh- which book do i get to learn to diet or which video or watch or 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 what what uh, fitness program and how much do i pay my gym you'll just launch an app and then it'll be it'll be your coach it'll be your advisor it'll be your monitor it'll be doing all these things to help you live better and uh and and that's just amazing what if if you just extrapolate what we know today if that gets becomes mainstream that's going to affect a lot of things and a lot of the industry around healthcare is exactly uh, trying to capture that data, and and um, and that's what's going to happen more or less by the individual directly. Okay, let me shift gears for a minute here. You mentioned Clayton Christensen earlier, and we talked about him in the intro. Uh, there's been a bit of a dust up in the innovation community recently about a New Yorker article that dumps, or at least attempts to dump, some cold water on Clayton Christensen's writing about disruptive innovation. Uh, I assume you've read the article. What was your initial reaction? Well, it's interesting because when I first saw it, I, I, I was a little bit surprised that um, that it was addressing the uh, the book that came out in in, in 1997. Um, that was the first book in the series on the Shrotran, and she did not address any of the follow up work, which in itself answered a lot of this this the, the questions i mean it's i th- i think the the point of the article or the essay was that um disruption it gets overused by a lot of people it it gets um diluted or or exaggerated or it becomes cliched by overuse and a lot of people attribute um whatever they do to being disruptive and and, and so on and so on and then she Took a reactionary position to that and saying, you know, all these people are 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 uh, exaggerating and are are nonsense. And by the way, if you look back at the original work, there was a lot of things in there which it didn't say or were inaccurate. So you cannot base your your uh, um, theory of change, and that means society change, on 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 that work, but done it back in the 1990s. But that came across as an attack on the theory, even though I think the theory, she's right in saying that the theory is misapplied, but the fact is that the theory itself has been evolving over a long period of time. Hundreds of articles have been written, dozens of books by many, many people, and many have done enormous data research and are, are, are expanding the theory all the time. So I, my response to it was I wrote an article um, called the Disruption FAQ, or Frequently Asked Questions, where I said, hang on a second, let's be clear about what this actually, what is disruption and what does it mean? And it's not, it's not what, what um, I think the reactionaries, which is I think what, what Jill Lepore is, or the protagonists or proponents of it that are, that are over the top um, uh, cheerleading it. I think it's in the middle but you, you have to know what it is and what it isn't. And so I went back to first principles and asked the question, what is disruption? Let's define it clearly. Um, it, is, it is often 
obfuscated by a lot of a lot of language that's verbose. So my the the clear the the point I try to make is that it's a simple principle that actually existed before the theory and will probably always exist, and that is the principle that the the weak can defeat the strong. We call it disruption because it's unexpected that David beats Goliath. That's the story of disruption, and I think it's a very powerful story. It's both one that that, as I said with the David and Goliath reference, that has existed for millennia. People recognize that even back in the, in the, in the, in the time of the Bible. And so they, they recognize, you recognize, I put it in my article, you can recognize this on the child, you know, in, 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 the, in the playground. Um, as a child, you can see how you can fight asymmetrically. And asymmetric competition is what enables this, is that the fight is unequal. I call it unfair. But that's that's life. That's real life. Um, it's not a sport. It's 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 always about trying to fight in an asymmetric way. Sun Tzu in the Art of War is all about that. Um, asymmetric information is uh, the Nobel Prize winning theory that underlies um, uh, uh, the the essential contract and game theory. A lot of these, you know, asymmetric warfare is how guerrilla fighting happens to succeed against armies uh, which are, are filled with much more resources and technology. And so th all of that is all, these are all facets of the same phenomenon. In business, asymmetric competition leads to disruption and therefore the uh, weak can defeat the, the, the strong. And uh, asymmetric competition happens to be uh, the, the, the two words together is what I use as the name of my blog, Asymco. Nice. Very. That's a great way to bring it all back full circle. Last question before we before we wrap up, and and doesn't have to be a long answer. It can be if you want it to be. But Apple, you follow very closely. They're known for releasing products that shake up entire industries. So the iPhone shook up uh, telecom, iTunes shook up media entertainment. Uh, if you had to pick one thing that Apple is working on that you think companies should be thinking or planning ahead for, what would it be? Uh, well, I think I think that the. The next area to be shaken up um, is is the um, like I said in the beginning. It's, it's like you see these white spaces. People say, "Well, there's no more opportunities." I see. I see. There's tons of opportunity because you look at all these spaces where, to put it bluntly, software has not yet infiltrated. Software. You can say technology, but let's be more specific. It's software. Once you inject software into any product, you, you go from making it dumb to smart. Of course, with that software comes a processor, it comes with networking, it comes with access to services and all these other things. But once you've got that a capability of a, a, a product becoming intelligent by having a microprocessor running software with APIs and all these other things, the, the, that industry is never the same again. In fact, that's, where, that's, that's the technological core that causes the disruption. So, so it, what we saw is software got injected in consumer electronics. Boom, that was the iPod. Software got injected into phones. Boom, that was the iPhone and everything that followed. Software getting injected into televisions. That's going to change it. Software getting injected into wearables, like a watch, would change that. Now, it won't be a watch. It won't be about telling time anymore. It'll be a completely new thing, just like an iPhone is no longer about being a phone. Phone happens just to be an app on a little computer. So if we put in software in places where there is no software today, and as I said, that could be healthcare, that could be you know energy sector, that could be education. There's they're right now in transportation. They're now sitting around software free. 
software is going to come in. It comes in with Apple because Apple is able to integrate it with the product that people buy early on. But over time, that becomes modularized. And then you have platforms and, and other things like Android essentially taking up uh, or filling that in uh, as a market. But it's, it's, you know, Apple lives with that. That's the reality for them. Uh, they're never going to do, you know, uh, a Windows or an Android. So they need to continue moving where that formula, which they have, makes sense. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to make predictions, but I, I think the open spaces that are attractive short term are, like I said, healthcare, education, uh, and transportation. And uh, we're seeing HealthKit, we're seeing iPad in schools, and then we're seeing CarPlay as early indicators of, of, of where that's going. And of, of course, the home as well, and that's HomeKit. Yeah, yeah. I saw uh, for the first time this weekend, we've all probably seen pictures of the Google self-driving car. Saw a Mercedes 2025 18-wheeler that is a self-driving car this weekend for the yep. first time. Uh, yeah, so and I should, I should, yeah, I should definitely give credit to Google there because they're injecting software into the car, not through entertainment or, you know, the dashboard being, being intelligent, but rather that the whole car ought to drive itself. And that's maybe the, the, that may not happen soon, but we're seeing that injection of software is going to completely redefine that industry. So if Google is resisted by the incumbents and they say, you know what, we don't like your, your solution, Google's going to make their own car. And, and that they can because that industry has already reached that point where it's, it's basically commoditized. So they can just pick the pieces off the shelf and assemble their own car. And, and then if they get into that business, you know, they'll, they'll you know, like Tesla's already demonstrated, they'll just, they'll just bulldoze it. They'll just run, run un, un, unrestricted uh, through, through it all and, and just scale. So that's what's going to happen. So transportation, Google is, is, is ahead there. Um, like I said, in the home, here's your, uh, an important point. You have more intelligence in your smartphone than in a multi-million dollar house. The house has no intelligence because it has no software at all. It's very, very crude, almost like 1960s mentality about it. Now, what happens when you inject it? You're not going to inject it in the walls. You're not going to inject. You're going to basically buy little, little appliances like smart light bulbs, smart locks, smart uh, you know, appliances, and these things will end up talking to each other, and they'll be controlled from your phone, which becomes really the brain, uh, and the house becomes an accessory product to your phone, and the, and the car becomes an accessory product to your phone as well. So wherever you choose to create that hub, um, that hub happens to be in the phone now, it might evolve over time, it might become wearable, we don't know, but basically that means that all these other products which are costing you a lot more money will end up being subservient to it because the information and communications is going to go through that device and all your attention is going to go into that device. That's, that's how the weak disrupt the strong. That's, that's, that's disruption. Nice. Great note to close on. Horace Dediu, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. If you'd like to read Horace Dediu's work or find out more about his company, Asimco's home on the web is asimco.com. That's A-S-Y-M-C-O dot com. You can also find Horace on Twitter at at Asimco, where he frequently comments and posts on innovation-related topics. Thanks again to Horace Dediu for joining us this week, and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode, when we're very excited to have 
fittingly enough, another of Clayton Christensen's disciples on. We'll be talking with Whitney Johnson about driving disruptive innovation, how to disrupt yourself in the quest for a more meaningful personal and professional life, telltale signs of companies with disruptive innovation in their blood, and why we'd all be better off if we spent more time dreaming and less time staring at screens. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.